By now, like bathrooms and hot water, a library is got up as standard equipment for a fine house. That's Seneca, the great Stoic philosopher, writing 2,000 years ago. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second after this message from our sponsor. Hi, it's Bernadette G, and I'm here to talk to you about how you can become a better storyteller. Storytelling is not an art reserved for the chosen few. It's a skill that you can learn, just like the students who've taken part in the Story Skills Workshop have done. Actually, I had a story to tell that was really important for me, but also was going to be very, very important for people in the future. It's been absolutely life-changing for me to see stories everywhere and to see my own stories. I was surprised that the learning was as much in the giving as in the receiving. We got to not only learn about storytelling, we actually got to practice using stories in our everyday life. The biggest shift I've found is now my own stories and the stories that I really want to tell are bubbling to the surface. I can't stop seeing them. Whether you're just starting out or you're an experienced storyteller, this is a place where your stories will get better in a very short time, guaranteed. If you're ready to become a better storyteller, I hope you'll join us. Find out more at thestoryskillsworkshop.com. Two updates since I recorded this episode. The first is that a recent study showed that among all amusements in America, museums, sporting events, horseback racing, the movies, the number one way that Americans are spending their time out of home is at the library. And second, of course, is that the library near me and the one near you are probably closed. And that's a good reason to miss them. And I can't wait until they reopen. Here's to health and to peace of mind. Libraries have changed far more than we imagine. More than most other institutions that we take for granted, the library keeps shifting. And right now, in this very moment, is its greatest shift of all. Let's get one thing out of the way first. Melville Dewey, not the guy who defeated Truman, but the guy who put his name on the Dewey Decimal System, was a creep, a jerk, and a bully. Melville Dewey required any woman who was applying for a job with him, this was 120 years ago, to attach a photograph of herself to the application, because in his words, you can't polish a pumpkin. Melville Dewey was anti-Semitic, racist, and sexist. And now that we've got that out of the way, and aside about the history of libraries, Sir Antonio Genicio Maria Panizzi, who lived throughout the 1800s of Italian descent, was one of the most important figures in the history of the modern library. Not because he once got caught selling white mice on the street in London. It's not exactly clear to me why someone would sell white mice on the streets of London, particularly if they were knighted, or why someone would buy white mice on the streets of London. But that's a story for a different podcast. Now, what Sir Panizzi did 
was invent a way to sort and itemize books. He was the pioneer of modern card catalogs, which is one of the most important jobs the librarian has. One more aside about Panizzi. He was involved in a fairly public and probably racist spat with the great Thomas Carlyle. Carlyle even mentioned him in one of his books as being particularly difficult to deal with as a librarian. Well, Panizzi got his revenge because when Carlyle asked for a small room in the British Library to work on his next book, Panizzi turned him down. How did we end up with libraries in the first place? A couple of reasons. The first is governments like to write things down. They like to write down rules and regulations as well as debts and balance sheets. In addition, religions like to write things down. And so the combination of scripture, spiritual books, and government records led to the need to store all of these scrolls or tablets or ultimately books. So the first libraries weren't libraries in the way we think of them. They were warehouses for books that only certain people were anointed to be able to enter. One way to deal with the book shortage, because books were all created by hand, was to give the monks something to do. The ostensible reason for monks acting like scribes and copying books over and over again was that it was a way for them to spiritually connect with the words in the book. But it led to an interesting byproduct, and the byproduct is more books. And so monasteries were spewing up books all the time. Not the way a printing press could, but there were more and more books in the world. But books were valuable. Books were a status symbol. As Seneca pointed out, owning a book, owning more than one book, was a sign of prestige. So a wealthy Roman could imagine outfitting a room in his or her home with floor-to-ceiling shelves filled with books, books you would probably never read. And one of the things that really annoyed Seneca was a wealthy person who collected books but didn't read them. Fast forward a little bit to the printing press. The printing press dramatically increases the availability of books, but books still cost a fortune. It wasn't unusual for a well-made book to cost more than a peasant would make in a year. And so we needed a way to let scholars and others see books and touch books, books that they could not possibly afford. So libraries started to be places where people could go to access books. However, the books were often chained to a table. That's how valuable they were. There was one lending library in Germany, but that library, the Ducal Library, between 1714 and 1799, about 80 years, only loaned out 31,000 books, some of which may still be overdue. What that means is that unless you were a scholar, you probably weren't spending much time in the library touching chained-up books. At the same time that libraries were developing over this thousand-year period, the people who built libraries understood that it was a chance for architecture. Because if libraries were a luxury good, a rare item, something that represented intelligence, housing them in a beautiful building was a way for whoever built that building 
to make a statement about their prestige and status. This led to a long series of wealthy people being involved in libraries. Andrew Carnegie, for example, funded libraries around the United States. Big, overbuilt buildings filled with books that celebrated not just the idea of literacy, but the idea of Andrew Carnegie. And not very well known, Bill and Melinda Gates made their first substantial donation as philanthropists to enable libraries to enter the digital age, paying for thousands and thousands of computers to be installed in libraries around the country. But I'm not really that interested in talking about the past of libraries as much as I am to talk about the future of libraries. Because if you visit the typical suburban library in the United States or other parts of the world, what you may see is that the thing that is taken out the most, the item that circulates most often, isn't the work of Seneca. It is, in fact, a DVD, maybe 101 Dalmatians. I'm not exactly sure which title, but they are basically DVD stores for free. Now, if you're a librarian, it's likely you did not sign up to be running a video rental store. So we need to think a little bit about what it means to be a librarian in the post-Melville Dewey, post-Google world. Because the early libraries didn't have librarians who did what librarians do now. The early libraries were about access, keeping the wrong people from touching the wrong books that you took what books the king gave you or the pope gave you or that you could afford, but mostly what you were doing was lightly organizing, maintaining, and guarding these precious objects. Only in the last 200 years, thanks to Sir Panizzi, do we have the idea of the modern librarian, leaving aside the white mice. The modern librarian's job is to make information and knowledge accessible to the people who need it. They are not a guard. They are not running a warehouse where books go to die. That the passion of the librarian is to connect people to information. And in the world before the internet, it's hard to imagine more important work. Keeping the flame of knowledge alive. Helping generation after generation connect to what they needed to know. The kids section at libraries has always been one of the juiciest parts because it's at the kids section that we are teaching people the lifelong habit of looking it up, of finding it out for real, of figuring out how to combine ideas to create new ones. A quiet place with carols. By the way, the carols were invented right around the time they started chaining books to desks. A quiet place where you could sit and think and discover. But then, then the DVD came along and then the internet came along. So most adults, most adults don't spend much time in the library anymore. Because if you're going to look it up, you look it up by typing something into a computer. And now an invisible AI is going to supposedly find it for you. Back when I was at Yahoo, there was a secret room at Yahoo that had hundreds of people working in it. And what they did all day by hand 
was use library science to sort every single website they could find. Yahoo was not a search engine. It was a directory. It was a directory built by librarians to surface the websites that they thought people would be interested in. It's only after that, when PageRank came along, when the whole thing got automated, that A, the web exploded because we could put more stuff into it because it could get found by a robot. But B, we replaced forever Melville Dewey's idea with miscellaneous. Miscellaneous, the idea that it's all in a pile and that maybe a computer can find it for us. So, unaided by any humans, we are now randomly poking at a huge collection of random information and developing new skills to discern where's the good stuff and where's the other stuff. But what about that building in town? The first public library in the United States funded in New Hampshire, a state known for not wanting to tax itself because the people in that town in New Hampshire felt that they would all benefit if they all knew something new. But if we're going to the library to get a DVD, we are dishonoring the librarian. We are dishonoring all the years that came before. Benjamin Franklin's Junto was a subscription library where each member put in some money where they could buy books and then share them. Subscription libraries sounds a little bit like Netflix, where people put in money, $9 billion last year, and then that $9 billion is spent to acquire new content that is shared among all the subscribers. But that library, what is that library for, that building in town? Were we in such a hurry to replace it with a WeWork? Maybe there's an opportunity here for libraries to step back into the fore of how we create our intellectual culture. What would it mean for the library to be the water cooler in town? What would it mean for the library to connect all the disconnected independent people around ideas? That because we shifted gears and started treating the library like a warehouse for books, and then suddenly forgot about books, because books are cheap, because books are everywhere, because people stopped reading, because it doesn't pay to look stuff up when all we have to do is type it into the computer, we're throwing out that architecture, that structure, and the librarian at the same time. I still regret the 3,000 books I had to give away when I moved my office. Every time I created a book as a book packager, I bought every book available on the topic. I went to Barnes & Noble or the independent bookstore and bought them all because buying 10 or 20 books on the Academy Awards would pay for itself in a heartbeat after I wrote the book. Back when I created the Information Please Business Almanac, we put the phone number for the Hawaii Public Library in the book. Why? Because when it's midnight in New York and your boss is waiting for you to finish something, you could call Hawaii where it's not even close to closing time and maybe somebody at the library would be able to help you. That's going away. What will we replace it with? Where is the center, geographically or digitally, of how we will connect with one another around ideas? Because ideas still matter, but we have commodified them. We have created an infinity of ideas online 
some of which are useful, most of which are junk. And without a librarian, a passionate guide who will help us put things into the right decimal allocations, without Sir Panizzi to figure out new rules for how we will determine which access is worth it, we are at risk of getting lost in the darkness. Because the data is there, it's all over the web. But turning data into information, particularly in a world where we're obsessed with convenience and obsessed with shortcuts in the short term, turning data into information is a craft. And it's librarians who have trained to understand that craft, but too often got pushed into being video clerks instead. That going forward, certain communities will build subscription libraries, will find the guides, the Sherpas they need to work their way through where they are to where they want to go. I have no doubt that there's a new layer to be added to the history of the library. One aside here, a year and a half ago, I put a $20 bill inside one of the books in my local library. I went back and checked, and it's still there. We don't need a warehouse for books anymore. Or if we do, we don't need one in every town. What we need instead is a place. A place, digital or local, with energy, with possibility, and with connection. Because when we build that light in the center of whatever circle we choose to be in, that light of knowledge and possibility, we have a chance to make things better. Thanks for listening to my rant. I'll see you at the library. We'll be back in a second with two questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth, this is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. At Akimbo, we love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this episode or anything that's come previously, visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and press the appropriate button. Hey, Seth, it's Tony from the Albany, New York area. One of the things that just you're so good at is the nuance of words and really pinpointing what a word means and, and how it should impact our behavior. And one word that has been floating around, and I want to know your take on it, is the word professional. Now, I've heard you talk about it in other medias besides your podcast. And one in particular, I was listening to a podcast you were on, and you implied that what most people think is that a professional is someone who is paid. But then you were joking around with this person. And the person said that he was a professional pizza eater. And I'm not quoting, but you didn't hesitate to agree with that person. 
Now, clearly he is not paid to eat pizza, but you both agreed that he was a professional pizza eater. I work with volunteers, in particular volunteer emergency services, workers, volunteers, volunteer EMTs, volunteer firefighters. Um, the river villages where you have your offices are all protected by volunteer firefighters. And especially in a time like today of COVID-19, the bravery of these volunteers is noted and, and elevated for everyone to see. But just because they're volunteer, does that mean that they're not professional? How do you define professional? Thanks, Seth. Thank you for the kind words and the juicy question. You are right. The word professional doesn't mean someone got paid to do it. My definition is this. A professional shows up to do their best work even when they don't feel like it. A professional does the hard work of getting better at their craft. A professional is open to feedback so their craft can get better. None of those things apply to amateurs. So I was probably being a little tongue-in-cheek when I said that Brian was a professional pizza eater because I don't think he has ever eaten pizza against his will. But yeah, he shows up and eats pizza in places that an ordinary amateur pizza eater might be too lazy to seek out. But for all of us, what I'm getting at is this. When we hire someone to do work, whether they're a volunteer fireman, whether they're a musician or a doctor, we are hoping for a professional. Because professionals don't bring authenticity. Professionals bring commitment and consistency to the table. The volunteer firemen in my town are truly professionals. We count on them to save our lives, and they don't let us down. It's true they don't get paid, but that's okay, because getting paid isn't what makes you a professional. What makes you a professional is the posture and enrollment that you bring to your work. Hey, Seth. My name's Peter, and I've been listening to Akimbo for the past few weeks. I manage a franchise automotive dealership in one of the most competitive markets in the country. As I've been listening, I've been trying to find if there's a better way for the automotive industry to operate. The industry carries a negative stigma, which most dealers still adhere to and thrive on. My question is this. If you're in an industry dominated by no desire to change and where buyers only care about finding the lowest price, how can you make a change for the better? Almost every process of the business, from customer privacy to the final transaction, needs to be changed, and the complexities have been lost on where to even begin. Thank you for this question. Yes, you're right. Different industries have different flexibilities when it comes to change. One of the biggest reasons is because of the network effect. Some industries don't lend themselves to having their existing infrastructure changed. Either the supply chain is locked in place, and that is largely true in the very stuck car dealer business because car dealers have various levels of exclusivity. Car manufacturers, there aren't very many new ones coming along. It's all fairly stuck. But I want to highlight one of the things you said, which is that all customers seek the lowest price. That's just not true. What's true is that dealers have taught the customers that they're all the same. And since they're all the same, why on earth would you pay extra? A Toyota Prius is a Toyota Prius no matter who you buy it from. If that is true and the process is uncomfortable, why on earth would you pay extra to get a Prius from someone else? Well, we know, if you check out the story of Sewell Cadillac, that it is entirely possible 
to build a dealership that proudly does not sell at the lowest price. So here's the question. If you really want to change the car dealership business, how could you run a dealership whose slogan is, you'll pay a little bit more than you could, but you'll get a lot more than you pay for? Because if you could make that slogan true, you could teach people who are willing to get more than they pay for that it is worth paying you a bit extra. But in my experience, having bought, I don't know, 30, 50 cars in my lifetime, it's not true. It's not true because sooner or later, the dealers start to race to the bottom. They act like they're going to do something else, but then they don't. What would it mean if you actually did something else? Think about all the other parts of our life where someone charges extra and it's worth it, whether it's a restaurant or a supermarket or a doctor or a lawyer. Costs more, but it's worth more than it costs. Doing that is the first step to going on the journey to changing the industry. I hope that's helpful. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.